When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we welcome back Ann Jandernoff for our annual conversation on grouse hunting, mapping, and more. Welcome back to the show for episode number 115. Project Dublin Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. I've told you this before, one of my favorite things about Onyx is that you pay for the subscription once a year or once a month, however you choose to do it. They keep working behind the scenes to improve and make the app better every single day. Onyx Maps just overhauled their offline mapping system, which is a key 
key component for a lot of folks hunting in remote areas. Offline maps are now downloading twice as quickly. You can pause and resume offline map downloads. You can queue up multiple maps to start. Partial map downloads will still load. If you've had any issues with the offline mapping aspect of Onyx in the past, which there weren't many, but let's be honest, we can always be improving. The offline map system in Onyx has been completely revamped. Check it out. Get ready for your next hunt today. Know where you stand with Onyx. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by CZ USA Shotguns. Shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind. From the Bob White Sharp Tail Side-by-Sides to the Upland Ultralight and Wing Shooter Elite over and unders. CZ USA has a shotgun for you. They've got pumps. They've got semi-autos head over to cz-usa.com to learn more and by gumleaf usa high quality handcrafted premium rubber boots my favorite pair of grouse hunting boots i'm in season four with my gumleaf viking boots and they are still going strong showing no signs of slowing down i've got the viking techs as well a little bit lighter weight i'm wearing those in the early season i love my gumleaf boots if you want dry feet and comfortable feet i suggest you check them out head over to gumleafusa.com and use the promo code pup one zero to save ten percent from Gumleaf USA and by Doctor Callers for over thirty years. Doctor has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Head over to Doctor.com and by Electronic Shooters Protection ESP. I've got my set of custom Apex earplugs. Have tested them out on the shooting range and will be testing them in the field very soon. More to come on ESP. That's Electronic Shooters protection and by trinity kennels home of the epignol breton french britney spaniels from champion bloodlines field tested family approved for over 30 years check out the project upland podcast episode number 88 with jeff and josh reuter and head over to trinitykennels.org to learn more and finally by dakota 283 kennels unparalleled protection one piece rotomold design frame steel door everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip that's dakota283.com and use the promo code PU10 to save 10% on your next kennel purchase. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Andy G. Andy sent me an email a while back, very thoughtful, honest email, some feedback on the podcast, some future suggestions, and just an all-around well-thought-out email. Andy, I appreciate it. Project Up and T-shirt headed your way very soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show, leave the show a rating and review in your podcast app, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, or send us some feedback or guest suggestion. You can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com all right everybody today is september 15th which means wisconsin rough grouse season is open michigan rough grouse season opens today and minnesota rough grouse season opens on saturday and hopefully a whole bunch more seasons right on the heels of the great lakes grouse hunting kickoff week want to wish everybody the best of luck out in the woods the season has begun i'm checking out of the grouse woods for a few days i'm getting all packed up and tomorrow morning early i'm heading west with my buddy garrett we're going to be out in western north dakota chasing sharp tails and huns with my buddy tyler webster but for now we're going to talk to ann janderna all about rough grouse hunting scouting mapping we've got some listener questions in here we talk to ann every year it's always a great conversation i learn something new every year and i hope you do as well and let's welcome into the conversation and onto the project upland podcast ann janderna That's okay. You wouldn't believe it. I'm sitting in the cemetery. 
<laughs> with, with Kenzie watching a red squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> Kenzie, is that one of the setters? He's my buddy. He's that black and white one that's always striking some pretty poses. Oh, okay. All right. And uh, he's he's he goes everywhere I go, just about. <laughs> well, we're rolling in, so welcome back to the Project Upland podcast. I thank you again for joining us. You're, you're getting to be kind of a regular contributor around here. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's nice. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, well, we certainly appreciate you taking the time each fall to speak with myself and the Project Upland podcast listeners. I know it's it's kind of become a, a little bit of a ritual now for me. I know when, when the grouse season is about to kick off, I'm going to be giving Ann a call, and we're going to talk grouse hunting and mapping and habitat and all that stuff. Sounds real good. How has your late summer slash early fall we were just joking that we really have kind of snapped to fall at this point how how has how have things been going you getting the dogs in shape are you ready to roll yep um i've got a group of uh 10 puppies i'm working with and uh well most of the group it's they're very young still and i'm at the point where okay we've done the starter pistol and everything and their majority of them all are casting i mean in fact they don't even look like they're pups but you got to keep reminding yourself that you know what today they just turned five months old so i'm sort of debating on do i jump real quick to the shotgun and i'm you know and they seem bold as ever but i'm just i think i'm going to jump to a noise level in between and and uh you know keep working with them just a little bit and i think i'll bring the shotgun out in about two weeks they're doing good yeah so you have 10 puppies so are they i would imagine you're not going to keep them all are how long are you going to keep them they're basically going to go out toward the middle of uh october okay I mean, they're young, and so it's not like someone can go out and hunt these little guys very long. But they'll they'll be going, they're all spoken for, they'll be going through the woods, they'll be e-collar broke, they're going to be three-quarters house broke, and then they'll also be gun broke. And uh, so they're doing really well, and, but man, they're just, it's like, man, you guys are coming on faster than I thought you would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe the, the cooler air has got their wheels turning, too. Well, it's it definitely gets them wound up because you know you know as I do when you have a young pup on a bird, and he's trying to track it through the woods, and then they start casting out and casting out and coming back, casting out, and coming back. That's not the time to bring them in. Well, I've got two of them that don't want to come in. <laughs> <laughs> Nor is it the time to you know tap them with the collar or right. anything because you don't want to do anything negative when they're associated with that. So yesterday I was going through the soaking wet aspen, trying to get this pup to come in. She's like, one more loop, one more loop. I think I found it, one more. <laughs> Finally, I got it. I was soaked, the pup was soaked. And every time you hit one of those aspen trees, it was just raining water. Yeah. So it was a cold mess. Since you mentioned it, I'm curious about your gun introduction with the pups because i've got a i don't know if we've had a chance to speak but i've i've got a puppy she's about four months old right now and i've been taking things Mm -hmm. very slow and having lots of fun with her and we haven't done any gun stuff yet and but i'm just curious about your methods and maybe it varies just given that if you've got 10 pups around you might do things a little differently than somebody like me would with one dog but i'm curious what's your method well my method is you know every pup is different that's the first part of which most people really there isn't any set i adapt to the pup but i try to bring them along as a group and the way my kennel's set up is that they can watch me leave with the pup they will hear any noises on the other side of the aspen where i have a johnny house and i start out with a really quiet like kid type 
you know how we played with the little uh, pistols with yeah, the those little, little strips caps. of paper. Yeah. Yep. yep. So I start out with that actually. Okay. Uh, something like that, and then I get to the point where I'm doing multiple shots, even if they aren't, you know, they're in the woods and everything, even if they are not chasing something, you know, because always, you, typically, whenever you start with noise introduction, I want them engaged, and I associate that with a quail, and I toss that quail out so it goes just straight down the trail, and that pup is beelining out, out after it, and I can make sure that it's, you know, it's not going to all of a sudden stop and hold up, fire it off, fire it off. And then, so I, then at that point, was after I've done that four or five, six times, then I go to an actual starter pistol, Okay. you know, like, like we use for the small, small crimp cartridges. Yep. And that's the same thing. Same thing. Started off, you know, just the same way. And now you could fire that starter pistol anywhere around those pups and they just maybe look at you and say, oh, heck, can go on. You know, and I want it that way. So the last thing I've done, which is this is new this year, is um, because I have so many, but the pups are coming on faster than I expected. And after a while, they're going to realize I can't catch this this bird. They're going to start hold, holding up. And that's not what you want when you jump into the gun part. You know, the actual like 410 or 28 or whatever you're going to use and really use light loads. Yeah, you want them chasing. Um, yeah, I want them engaged. Yeah. So this is my little bit of my dilemma is that they're going to figure it out. Yeah. And so I personally think five months is awfully young. But at this point, I'm like, well, you know, I had pups last year that at five and a half months were gun broke. And gun broke doesn't mean you can do anything you want. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. But what I do next is the same same program. And I might have someone that's back behind me a ways and looking and pointing the, the shotgun a different direction so it sends that noise that way. And I'll do the same thing. And the pup will run out and boom. And then we'll change, start changing the distance over time. The other thing I've got set up in the kennel is when they're there, they can, they can see out in front of them. And I put a post up with a, um, a T post with a big uh, piece of PVC. And I set up a swivel section with a eye bolt on top and the line, and then there's a harness for a pigeon. And what I've got there is I've been letting him, I've been shoot, sending the pigeon out of the launcher. Well, it just sails right past the kennel. And I've been doing the starter pistol. Every time it sails past the kennel, they're going nuts. Yeah. And that, so then what will happen with even that, same thing, someone will be out a ways. They can see I've locked, they'll be watching for that bird to come up. Same thing, shoot the gun a different way. And eventually we'll move that to about half of gun range. Yeah. So I'm doing it two different ways to accomplish the same purpose, but just being really, really careful. Yeah. Um, yeah, being careful, taking your time. The the key, the similarities there between the two methods, you've got birds involved and you've got dogs that are keyed in and engaged with mm-hmm. birds and they're excited. And then you're introducing the gunfire underneath that excitement and that's yep that's the method yep. that I, i'm familiar with and i think a lot of people use what whether or not it looks exactly that way a lot of people are using the same concepts well it's just and it's you know it's just like us we have bad days there's oh, yeah. some days you shouldn't even bring that gun out mm-hmm. i found that howling winds will make puppies sort of nervous um if they get disoriented they're going to become a little bit edgy but right now most of the group is getting actually obnoxious 
in the woods, <laughs> meaning they don't want to come in. And um, that's a good problem to have. You know, they'll grow up and then I can, you know, set up my boundary a little bit tougher with them. But they just think it's a great old time that we get to go. And uh, patience isn't, we've been working on patience. So when I stop, you know, they're hanging around and waiting. But it doesn't last very long. It's like, where, okay, where's the bird? Where, where's that scent? Okay, I'm going to go over here. It's got to be over here. Nope, it's over there. <laughs> but they're fun. Yeah. Lots of fun watching them. How will you address continuing now that, not that you're going to be hunting over these dogs, but hunting season in Wisconsin starts tomorrow. You're going to be running these dogs on wild birds. You probably already have been running them in wild bird cover. How will you address the, are you letting them run as a pack still, 10 puppies together? Are you trying to split them up, break them up? How do you oh, do that stuff? Uh, no, they've been split up okay. for a month and a half now. The drive is already there. The only time I would put a pup with another pup is to build the drive off of you use the drive of the one pup to early. push the other pup yep okay. early at this point they'll become obnoxious with each other and yep. everything turns from being serious and focused to playtime and i don't want to go back to playtime i want them you know basically hunting and hunting within a certain range and like i said you keep remembering they just turned five months right now so their bones are not knit to their joints. The growth plates are wide open, so you can't run them that long. Yeah, they're they're very short short sessions, and uh, you know they'll go out. They're going to learn to go in the vehicle and to do all that, uh, and uh, you know everything that we do with putting the collar and all that stuff on will be here starting here tomorrow. But it'll be trips. It'll be little trips and getting used to things and and all that because I'm able to basically. Within a minute after they have their collar on, they're in aspen cover. Yeah. And that, but I don't run them on a grouse because when they start that being in aspen cover, they're starting at about, I would say, 12 to 13 weeks. So, you know, very young, they're going into that aspen cover and yeah. they're actually going through it and they're learning to. And I've got it set up in that aspen cover. You know how it is when a little pup tries to go off. Oh, yeah. They, they hit a bunch of branches, and they bounce back over. And then for a while, they don't want to go back in. But I've made tunnels for them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> because that, they, then they start to look for those holes. Yep. And uh, so I've set up holes, and you start to see a little bit of rhythm of quartering start. And um, it's all – I take my time with it. This has been such a hot summer that I'm just thankful everything was extremely close. You know, where I could, with 15 minutes, I'd have what I want done and put them, walk them back. Yep. Because there was not the time to go through through that many pups that fast if you had to go farther out. or It was hot within, like, 7, 38 o'clock. For a young grouse dog that's, you know, destined to be a grouse and woodcock hunting dog, how important is that? early exposure to cover and getting them getting them into the cover and getting them what you said that that made me curious was getting them to look for those holes in those tunnels because i i think there's a difference between a dog that kind of weaves its way through the cover and then there's a dog that crashes through and i wonder if some of that early exposure can play into it i think it can play into it i mean for instance if you have Nothing against living in the cities, you know, right. or suburbs, because you do what you can. But a lot of people will start the healing. They'll start the walking on the lead and everything first. 
and I leave that toward the end mm-hmm. because I want the drive forward, you know, this consistent forward movement away from me. And also at that point, they'll settle down a lot more. They'll be more calm and acceptive of, of being restrained back. I just, I think it's important because so many pups don't learn that they can get into the cover. They don't learn to look for the holes. And, and I found that when someone would, you know, when I used to take in a lot of outside dogs, they'd come up from down down south or down in southern Wisconsin or wherever, and they didn't want to get off the trail because yeah. the trail had this imaginary boundary as if it was a sidewalk. And then I'd have to start casting birds, you know, bring some birds in a bag with me. And literally, it's like stitching together a pattern. It's just one morning you throw some birds out over on one side, you know, maybe one bird or, or something, and you go up a little ways and you throw it out on the other side. And what would happen is, you know, then you'd get the dog going to the right, then you'd get it going to the right, left, and then the next time it came out, it'd go to the right where you were, it'd go to the left where you were, and then you start stitching it together, and next thing you know, it's casting more and more. Yeah. Uh, for you. you you develop that pattern that quarter, quartering but that's because they didn't have it before their world was running in in the backyard maybe in a dog park yeah and just when we get on this path we stay here and we behave and we stay with the owner so it depends on what you've done with your pup have you got it in the woods i mean even taking a young pup into an older aspen area mm-hmm. that has older ones and then starting go- going down in size so that they follow you. They learn that weaving. I mean, think about people that have never walked an aspen cover before and they look at that and they think, how in the heck yep. <laughs> am I going to get it? And I've had people call up from down south that have never, have never hunted grouse and they're saying, well, what's it like? I said, put a thousand broomsticks in a room and then go, go and do a dance through it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, Oh, my word. And, you know, being a forester, I was used to weaving and dodging and all that. But I think of it that way. You know, if you've got people that have to adjust to it, then it's not surprising that a puppy will have to adjust to it. Have you ever had anybody ask you, well, where can I get that many broomsticks? Not yet. <laughs> you know, not yet. And I said, and they said, or you get, you get to the tag holders question. Is oh, usually, yeah. That's the horizontal they? stuff. Yeah. I said, well, you remember the pickup sticks when you drop them and they flatten all over on the top of each other. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> That's the best way I can say it, and then expect to trip over it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, that's great. So, yeah, not that a dog can't learn how to run through the cover at a later stage, but if folks have the opportunity and the availability, it's something to be thinking about if you've got a young dog to try to get them in that stuff earlier because, like anything with a pup, you know, the earlier you get them exposed to it, it tends to work out better, I think, in that regard. And right. I found myself in that situation with my pup this year, and I've had this. I am fortunate to have opportunities to get into aspen cover and, and wild bird cover, and so I've, we've been doing that. And I've got my older dog, which has – this is the first time I've seen this play out. My older dog has been a great – indicator Mm -hmm. for the dog to kind of pull my puppy into the cover and keep her keep her focused not on me so much whereas my first dog we didn't have another dog around he was always looking to me for direction which was fine but the pup is keying off the older dog and she's running and weaving through cover and doing 
that kind of stuff. But for me, hunting season is, it, I don't think it could be better time because she has, she's seen wild birds in the air. Mm-hmm. Thanks to the older dogs. Yep. She's bumped a couple wild birds herself, yep. but she's getting to the point now where she's mobile and she's fast and she's starting to pester my older dog and I got to split them up now. So I've been running them together just because my time is limited and I'm exercising the dogs, but hunting, well, season, yeah. hunting season's coming at a great time for me because from here on out, they're going to be pretty much separate the majority of the time. Well, it is. I mean, and I think a lot of things people ask me about, you know, well, even while I'll take them down a trail, I said, make sure the narrower the trail it is, the better. Yeah. Because getting that pup off the edge and into the woods is even better. And I've got a couple of woodcock, and I do have a couple of grouse, and I'm sparing. I'm really careful how much I push them. Yeah. But at times, I take... And I feel the pup's not going to go nuts on me and not come back in. And they've got the e-collar in. But like I said, you cannot correct a puppy when it's on scent. Right. I mean, it's like they know that they're supposed to come in, but I'm basically getting flipped the finger. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I've had (laughs) that happen to me a lot lately. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, no, I know better than you. You want me out here because of birds, and I'm not coming. (laughs) (laughs) You know? But, uh, you know, they've seen some, but they also, I let, I let quail run loose all through the woods up through sure. here as well. So they're getting the idea. We did run into a big turkey and, and that, and I was like, oh, my word. I had one pup almost go over backwards, like, and this big bomb goes off. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. Uh, but it's a, it's a fun time because there's nothing more fun than watching these pups just turn it on. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So one last question on the pups and then we'll kind of transition. But you mentioned earlier about keeping the exposures and the runs short for these puppies. And so Mm -hmm. with the caveat that every dog is different, but you've got five month old pups, I've got about a four month old pup. What are you looking at? Because you have you have experience running sled dogs and you're very, I would say you're very well versed on, you know, knowing what a dog can handle and what they can't. What are the signs you're looking for and do you have a do you got a time limit is it 30 minutes is it 45 what are you looking at to try to keep these short bursts of hunting you know fun and exciting for these pups you ever remember picking your pup up and seeing the back leg shaking yeah yep that means it's it's played out just about gotcha okay yeah that that quivering like shaking you know like that yeah when I would run my sled dogs, I could always tell when the whole team was really ready to turn it on. Because you'd bring them in, the respiration would go down, you know, to calm real quick, which puppies tend to do. But then uh, they basically, what will happen after that is um, one of the signs is those back legs will quiver. Okay. Uh, and for most of these dogs, the growth plates are really important because they need to close in. And many dogs, it's not till after 15 months. That's not saying you can't run your pup or your young dog, but what happens, and I see it many, many times, is that they see a pup or a young dog performing to just a fantastic level, and it's a little bit more, a little bit more, and a little bit more. Keep pushing. And next thing, yep, they keep pushing, and what will happen is that joint on the front will start to puff right there, and then you'll see a little dip in the gate just a tiny dip or you might see when your pup is standing still they'll shift the weight off of the one side that hurts so they'll see a shifting of the feet um and they might tip just a tiny bit and that means they're it's like if we're sore with one foot what do we do we put more pressure on the other foot yeah you know to take the pressure off of the one area and that comes from overrunning uh a pup and basically 
when the the hard part is is the more advanced they get, the more they think just like teenagers and when we were all younger that we were were bulletproof and they start busting harder through there, going up and over stuff, and their bodies weren't made to be doing that at that young of an age. Yeah. Basically, you're looking at a bone. If you look at an x-ray, you're looking at a bone, you're looking at some black space, and then you're seeing the joint. That's got it. That bone's got to move into those joints. And it's just, you know how the puppies look wobbly? It's because it's, everything's not not together yet. Yeah, they're not all fu- fused up, yeah. Fused, right. Yeah. So those are things that you need to, you know, really think about is, you know, yeah, the pups, you know, I hear sometimes from people, well, the pup wants to go. Right. I said, and you're the parent, and so put it up, you know, and do what's right for the pup. You know, I don't like to say it that way, but the pup is not dictating the range. The pup is not dictating the time. The You have to set the parameters. Yeah. No different than it was a child. Yeah, That's that makes that, yeah that makes sense. The you know really less is more kind of the key takeaway. And there's there's a pretty well known concept in dog training that you know you always stop when your dog is excited about it. You know when they want one more, mm-hmm. you know put them up yep. and and just err on the side of caution. A little bit less is is more. They just need that. It's repeated exposure is better than one big long one. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And they don't have that long of attention span. Right. Yeah. You know, and so they. I mean, mine are all keyed up to go. They can hardly wait to go. But the big thing is, is that they'll come up. You've seen older dogs sometimes when there hasn't been any a lot of scent, and they're just sort of going through the motions, quartering. Mm-hmm. And they're sort of a mindless, almost robotic. Uh, the puppies can get like that a little bit because all of a sudden they can't find any more scent or anything like that, and they're just running to be running. And that's when your accidents are going to happen. And that's like I mentioned earlier, the I've been having to go pick them up, get them out of the woods, and not even put them back on the ground because they just they just want to go again. And okay, we go through the gate, and I put them down, and it's like okay, it's over. You know, we're yep. gonna head back to the kennel. So. Yep. Well, good stuff. Appreciate the the puppy in, info. It's obviously very pertinent to me right now, and I'm sure some other folks listening. But let's let's transition in, like we said we were gonna do. Sure. And tell me what's new with Scout and Hunt. Anything new? Anything you want to update us with? Otherwise, we'll we'll dive into a couple questions that I have, and we'll eventually move on to listener questions. Well, on Scout and Hunt right now, you can um, you're also able to uh, write on the map. You know, oh. make marks okay. as well. Cool. You can bring in what's called a web map service, a WMS, and I'll be uh, posting some of the links for that, which means there's a, like a topo map that's 3D that you can bring in and you can cache that. There's some other imagery maps that you can bring in and add to your uh, listing of uh, base maps that you want to put underneath the uh, all the layers that are offline. And then the maps, while you're looking at them, you're going to be caching that map. And then that map is saved for you offline. I would say the other thing that, you know, you can always, you have been for a long time, been able to attach photos to points, polygons, and lines, mm-hmm. but you can also do small videos even. Oh, cool. You you can create a notes, and you could say you had a note of a hunt in a particular spot. You could attach that to that point, and you have also have a space to do, you know, a note. Uh, the other thing that I've added for Michigan, Wisconsin, and also for Minnesota is Minnesota. I looked at the. It's been very, very difficult to get the data that I would like out of Minnesota county lands. So I looked for forestry disturbances uh, in the forest, 
and I've got those put on that those disturbances that fell within the county lands have been put on. So what you'll see is a layer that's the general layer that's county lands, and then there'll be the disturbances on there. I've just updated the Wisconsin, excuse me, the Minnesota map, so that's all ready to go. Wisconsin has overlays for their MFL forest crop areas uh, that uh, where there's been disturbances in the forest. So in that particular sense, it, it might you might see something that says 2010 to 2012. That's the age range, sort of like what you do with Google Earth. Sure, is the age range of the cut, and you still with Wisconsin when they do the MFL forest crop, all they do is give you a dot for that. Yeah, the state does. And you got to remember, it's 40 acres. But sometimes these cuts might go out of that boundary. That doesn't give you the right to go onto private land. Got it. You're always responsible for you being on the correct property. Michigan did the same thing up there. Uh, a lot of the commercial forest lands are mainly in the UP of Michigan, so now there's information about that. So I've tried to add some extra information out west. I've uh, like in the Dakotas. Uh, put out some contour lines as well to sort of get an idea for you guys for elevation for some of the sharp tail stuff. Yep. And then let's see, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, uh, those areas that I basically build maps for are away from the population. I try to build things away from the farmland and all that. And there's people that think that you should have all this data within two hours of New York City or a big, huge town, you know, it doesn't work that way out there. There's so much a concentration of farmland and people that I try to build the maps away from, I mean, let's build the map where the timber harvesting is actually happening. Yeah. When so you, when you say that. build the maps, what you're, what you're saying is that you're not getting the forestry data straight from the agencies like you would in other places. So you're having to go no. in and, and look at the maps and draw them up basically. It's all from scratch. Yeah. Uh, it's very, it's extremely labor intensive. Yeah. Is, um, is that also what you were getting at with the, because I know the Minnesota County thing has been kind of a, uh, that's been an issue in the past, but is that what you're doing there too, is just going and visually looking for those disturbances, aka cuts right. or other things? No, there's, there's data now that takes a ton of processing. Okay. That is showing stuff like that from, you know, like NASA and things like that. That I'm digging into some pretty big, you know, I mean, some pretty big data sets. Oh, okay, okay. And sorting stuff out. So, and then I'm trying to give you the idea of the habitat around it, which is more basic than if I was dealing with the state or the federal. I mean, county lands here in Wisconsin, they take a different approach on releasing GIS information than Minnesota does. Yeah. So, but it's it still goes and gives you information. You just have to, I can't ever guarantee that the regeneration is going to be always to Aspen. Minnesota's pretty good about things coming back to Aspen, but there's areas in certain parts of, like, the northern part of Iron County and other areas that, uh, in Wisconsin here, that a lot of the regeneration, you're starting to hit a maple band in there, and it could switch over to maple, which isn't going to hurt if it's young enough for woodcock. Right. Uh, and there's parts of Michigan that you go north of Republic or you know go, go north of, uh, of uh, 
Amasaw and you get up by Lance and then you go into northern Holton, there's going to be more maple in certain areas. And like Gugubic County, the western side is, has a real big maple belt that follows that whole west side of the UP. So it's you got maples in certain areas and you've got more aspen regeneration going on in certain areas in, in Michigan. So it's the best I can give them for looking for new areas. But I would say between all three states, it's potentially added uh, probably about anywhere from twelve to 16,000 more cuts. Wow. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that raises a good point and we don't always, you know, we don't always talk about this, but I know just from following your business and the things that you've done over the years and you've always been about educating folks, you know, wanting to fuel the curiosity of hunters and give them more information. And this information becomes, you know, technology helps at times and it becomes more and more available, but anybody looking for the quote unquote, the golden ticket, you're not going to find that like this is this is to educate folks and to give them more information so that they can understand all of the nuances that go into what creates good grouse habitat. You have information, you go into a spot, you hunt it, you look at it and you check that versus what you saw on your map and you begin to put things together as a hunter. It's not a it's not a hey, here's your next spot. Go here kind of thing. Right. You know, you no clear cut is equal to each other. Right. They've all got their different phases of regeneration, of transitioning from a shrub component to a sapling component to a tree to a aging out. They're all in different stages, and soils will make a difference into where they're at. The biggest thing that I think that we've tried to do with the maps is not only, like you said, educate, but also give you a starting point. Yep. You know, so you're not spending hours wasting a vacation. Well, that's how the whole thing started. Right. I got upset. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, that's how a lot of good businesses start. You know, somebody has a problem and somebody decides to try to fix it. <laughs> yep. Yep. So that's, that's how it all started. But it's just, I've gotten to the point that, you know, I just grab the map and say, okay, let's try this and this. It may be a gold mine. It may not be a gold mine. It mm-hmm. may be, you see the signs and and then all of a sudden you see the shotgun cells, and well, I'll be here first next year. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So there, there are a bunch of uh, listener questions that we're going to get to, and we're already well into this. I, I probably shouldn't make this mistake of assuming that everybody knows who you are and that they've all listened to the previous episodes. So, and just before we go on, just give a brief overview of, cause we jumped right into scout and hunt. Just give a brief overview of Northwind enterprises and the different mapping products. And you don't have to dive deeply. We can certainly refer folks back to previous episodes. Sure. Basically I grown up in Michigan, went to school at Michigan tech forestry. And I do GIS with cartography and all that. The maps are basically right now, all it is is mobile. Okay. We're not doing the chips anymore. We're not doing the printed maps because Got it. I can put on a mobile map and those mobile maps go on your tablet, your PC, or your uh, iOS or Android phone or tablet, you know, and they're meant to get you out into the woods, you know, and start hunting. Uh, that's been the focus uh, of what we do, and it's all been about grouse hunting. And then, of course, then I have the other part, the setters as well. Yep, yep, got it. Okay, so before we jump into listener questions, I wanted to ask you a couple of things. One was regarding a post that you put on Facebook, and I know this is something, I think we've even talked about it briefly before, but you 
very closely monitor rainfall amounts. And you're always looking at the NOAA website and you posted some charts. And I just wanted you to give us a little bit of insight as to what you're looking at as far as rainfall amounts and occurrence levels and then how that filters into you know how you're approaching where you're going to hunt in the fall. Okay. Let's say, for instance, you have a county that you're going to go to. You can pick your county out of the state because I showed Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan there. And you can see where the county is. You know, you may have to go back and look at, you know, so the geography of the state, you know, Google it or whatever, but you see where you're going to hunt. Let's just... Let's just say, you know, you've got this county that you're going to go. And then what you're going to do is in May, you're going to see what the May, and I'm looking at for how much they have. You can also do, you know, you go to the precipitation analysis with NOAA, and you can do the deviation from normal. Okay. You know, you could do that instead of just what's been uh, observed. And if it's one or two inches or three inches, that's fine. But you start getting these bands where all of a sudden it dumped, dumped seven inches at the end of May or whatever. Yep. What do you think that just did to the hen that's sitting on the nest? Yeah, it may have flooded a few nests. It may have flooded a few nests if you had howling winds and a cold, bitter cold, and you know one of those nights that went into a slushy snow, that could change things. Yep. So I'm looking at, but let's just say nothing happened. It looks, you know, where you wanted to hunt looks great. Okay. Now let's look at June. Look at that area, that same area. And, okay, looks pretty good. You know, it looks like she probably had her brood. Everything looks good. And then all of a sudden, you know, because it's five weeks from when they mate to when they lay the, to when they hatch. So, you know, you hear people talk about drumming and just calculate out five weeks when it potentially could hatch. And I'd give myself a two to two and a half week window there because you got some fluctuation yeah. of when they mate. So then I look at the other area, and if you keep going through the through the months and it's like nothing happened, and you're not into like a drought or something like that, which really pushes them into the swamp, and then if you do have a rain, they got all these young chicks down there, you're probably going to have a nice area there. But if you have an area where, okay, we got through May, is good, pounded, you know, they got six, seven inches, five to six inches, those young chicks... If they're down by the lowland areas on that edge of that tag area and aspen areas, they just drowned more than likely. Yeah. Because they're they're just they're just when they're born they're they're the weight of two nickels, they're the size of about a man's thumb, and they're so small. They're just a fluff ball. Yep. You know, so like go throw a cotton ball in a piece of water and see what happens. It just soaks right up and that's it, and then they just they just die. So, you know, if you're in an area where they didn't get you know, hit with heavy rains, then you they'll be bigger and older when the rains if the rains come in in uh, in September. But if you're looking at an area where rain, rain, bigger events, and you can see the bands are usually they turn out pinkish or really dark red, yep. red to dark red to pink almost. You might want to think about it, and you need to look at how many times has this occurred, because those are also the areas where there's been flooding as well. So it's one of those things when you look at the, the precipitation analysis, you're looking for concentrations of rainfalls multiple times. Yep, got it. Again, it's more information. The more you know, it doesn't mean, you know, we're not going to go look at a chart and say, oh, the grouse hunting is going to be great there this year, but it's another thing to look at and it's another thing to kind of 
build up your repertoire as a grouse hunter to try to understand. We know that that makes better hunters. When you understand the things that are happening and influencing the birds and the habitat, you're going to be a better hunter. So that's just another thing that you can look at. And we all get excited. And people like me, I need something to look at, Ann. <laughs> well, I mean, and you're going to, you know, we've talked about it before. And this is something that people don't think about a lot. But you're walking down, think about how much water you're seeing and look, scuff the leaves back and look at the soil. Sure. If it's slick and slimy, you've probably got clay. If it's sandy, it'll be very evident. So if these areas that have had extra water, maybe not too bad, are sandy, you're probably not going to have problems. Right. Yep. But if it's if it's really, you know, clay base or like that edge where you're getting on the tag holders, you're going to have problems. I watched a brood that I knew where it was, and I'd see it quite a bit. And I watched it go from seven to three. Why? Because the hen had it down by the lowland areas. Yep. Yeah, and it's, it's just, you know, that's just what happened. But then... You know, it's easy to make a judgment. Oh, my, everyone got that. Right. Well, then I went to a different area, and I saw six. But that hen didn't raise them down by the lowland areas. Yeah, so those are the nuances that a, a precipitation analysis chart's never going to show you. Again, it doesn't mean doesn't mean we don't go out in the woods and see for ourselves, but it's it's more information. I love the fact that you brought up sand versus clay, because I, I love talking about that now. And I was going to ask you about that anyways, because... The flip side of that can also happen in a year that it's really dry. Those sandy mm-hmm. areas, those sandy areas can dry out quicker. And then at that point, is it that you could have a lack of food sources on the landscape for grouse? Well, what you're going to have is, yeah, and there'll be that cover that those little chicks are running underneath will yep. be dried up. A lot of the ferns, you know how they, they'll, they'll, pre, they'll basically wilt sure. early. Yep. You can always tell. If you get, you know, when you're ever in a good clear cut, use bunch berries as an indicator. It's part of the dogwood family, actually, these little bunch berries. And they form on the floor. And they they have like a, the leaves look sort of thick and shiny, but there's like a bunch of red berries together. And when you've had decent amount of moisture and you don't have a really open canopy, you've got a nice closed canopy, you will see a lot of bunch berries. You'll see strawberries, and you'll see other little plants down there. But those bunch berries, I can always tell when we've either had way too much rain or not enough rain, is that I only see them in certain places. If we've had perfect amount of rain, I'll see them scattered throughout the cut. If we've had a dry year, it's going to be right close to the tag alders. I'll start seeing bunch berries growing, and it's an indicator of what the ground flora or fauna, whatever you want to call it. I can never remember. (laughs) (laughs) It's that. But anyways, the ground cover that these little chicks are running around in, what did they have? Because, you know, they they start out eating insects when they're little, but then when they start flying and moving around a little bit, I think it was like in 12 days or something like that, they could start flying like little tiny bumblebees, you know. But uh, they start moving around in that, and then their diet becomes, instead of the protein they needed to grow, it starts shifting over to more vegetation type. And then eventually the vegetation goes into the catkins and leaves and, and then, you know, twigs and buds and all this other stuff, you know, little pieces here and there. 
Yeah, got it. All right, so we're going to jump into some listener questions here. I put a I put a thing on the Instagram story and Facebook yesterday and asked my followers to submit questions to Ann about grouse hunting, dogs, maps, you name it. And we've got a few here, so we're going to jump into these. First question is from Alex, and they're asking, I'm not sure about this, Ann. They're asking, what motivated you to switch from pointers to breeding setters? Did you actually do that? Mm-hmm. Okay. They used to have Elhues. Okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I did hear you talk about that with the gun dog at yourself, guys. Yeah. Um, genetic gene pool. Okay. Um, I wanted a bigger gene pool. Uh, when you start breeding at COIs, coefficient of breeding 10%, it's like breeding cousins. And when I, I was given a setter kennel, the only problem is they were all related. So that means I had to go look for something outside of that bloodline. And as I went through and looked at it, I had always noticed that the Elhues were ramped. Not all of them, but it was like a Ferrari that was always on high, idling. They'd settle down. Some would, some wouldn't. But consistently in a litter, you wouldn't get them all one way. Not that they're not a nice dog, but they are harder to guide with if you're trying to control a certain range and keep them where you want. And, you know, I was able to do that, but that doesn't mean everyone has, if you're going to sell dogs, the expertise to manage something like that. And I'm not knocking anyone, but it's, it's bad enough trying to hunt and shoot and then manage a dog. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, create, you know, have some accidents. I wanted a dog with more of an off switch because really when you think about it, we might get 20% maybe hunting, maybe 25, and the rest they're going to be in the house and they're part of the family. Yep. You know, and more and more dogs, it used to be the bird dog was back in the kennel behind the house, but it's not that way really anymore. They're more with you than they are being someplace else. And everyone has their own preference on how they like it, but typically my clients, it's a part of the family. So the lower the COI the more calmness that you will typically get. And you'll have more of that type of temperament. When you have a COI of a male and a female and you bring them together and it still creates a little COI, you're breeding on performance. That's what I do. I breed on performance and I wanted a bigger gene pool. So that's, you know, I kept a database with over 3,000 entries and I would look at different kennels and bring stuff in. And that's how I learned that well, I can only do two or three breedings with this dog, and I'm backed in a corner again. Yeah. And I got to bring in. So, and everyone has their different, how do you put it, what they want to accomplish. If you're going to do breeding and have a kennel on that, I just personally want it COI. I want a really defined off switch. And the, the pointers I had, and they're not all like this. You know, some will say, well, Christ, my dog just lays around all right. the time. Yep. Well, the, the bloodlines I had, the particular ones, they didn't all do that. And so that wasn't, for me, fitting. I think people go with dogs that fits their personality, fits how they hunt, fits what they want out of it, fits their life. And that doesn't mean that these other bloods, it has to be a setter or it has to be an English pointer or that an LHU pointer is bad. That doesn't mean that at all. It has to fit what you want to work with. Like, you're not going to get me to drive a little car. I'm only going to drive something that's got four-wheel drive and it's got bigger tires on it. <laughs> you know? It fits me. Yeah, that's that's our good fortune to be able to 
pick and choose cars just like we can to a certain extent pick and choose dogs and and i appreciate that Anne. <laughs> yeah so i mean it's just it was i feel like it was a rambling answer but i had to find what was right for me yep That's and your it. clients have have helped you kind of work work on that as well and you're, you're catering to them and making people yeah. making dog owners happy well, that's just it, you know, and I, and I feel fortunate because now I'm at the point where I'm seeing people come back for their second or third dog, so yeah. I know I keep them happy, and that's what I want. I want them happy. Yeah, that's yeah. good. All right, next question is from C. Withrow. He's asking, what are some good resources for a newbie that doesn't have a mentor? Well... I would, you know, I'm gonna look. I'm gonna <laughs> I was, talk I was about. gonna say, I was gonna say, you can't say scout and hunt, and but that's no, honestly. No, I'm, that... I'm talking. I'm talking a book. Oh, okay. I'm okay. A book, a book. I would think you'd know which book I'm gonna mention, and, and that's going to be. Um, it's going to be basically Gordon Gillian's The Rough Grouse. Grouse of the North Shore. Yep. Same yep. thing. Yep, same. Yep. Basically, same book. The yep. Rough Grouse. That is an excellent, excellent book. And what it really gets into, I mean, there's some stuff that you're going to glaze over, sort of like, uh, and then there's other stuff. But it breaks the life of that grouse down by season, food sources, cover, all of that. And there's a lot of different information, and that's really a nice one. I think the other thing is is that, you know, if you're a newbie, I've always said this, and and I'm just going to put this out here. People can call me as well. I don't have a problem with that at all. Just, you know, and then it's getting into habitat. That's going to be the other part. If you're not hunting the right habitat, you're going to get very, very frustrated. Yes. And uh, so, well, whether you want me to say it or not, I know that my apple cut the learning curve down. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so well, I think, I think that's a, that's a fair point to make. And I actually think, I think you brought up some great points in that thinking about it from a total beginner's mind, understanding the bird biology, a lot of the, the great books, like you mentioned, they talk a lot about the bird and it's, you might think, well, I'm just want to hunt the bird. I don't want to know what it does every day, every it's day, important. all day. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's very important to understand how the bird lives and uses the habitat. Well, they're, they're bird of, of, they're very, I hate to say it this way, but, you know, I only saw this because of guiding so much. They really are, in a lot of ways, predictable. Yeah. You know, if you go into an area and you look at your cover and before you, or your map or whatever you're hunting, think about this. Where's your high land? Where's your low land? What lies in between? How steep is it from the high to the low? What's the difference from the high to the to the low? What time of day they came out from the low in the morning typically to go to the high, but if it got wet, they're going to go back down to the low. Where is it thicker? Typically not on the high, it's on the low. And what are they going what type of habitat are they going to look for to escape you? Night unless they're cornered and pushed out of their natural pattern, they will go back to the low. That really should help people. The nice of the day, it warms up. We get those fall days, you know, when they move up into the edge of the hardwoods and they're maybe messing around in the hardwoods and then they go back down. Where do they sail to? Typically back down. So think about what the lay of the land is when you hunt because then, and what your weather, time of day, time of year, you know, are they eating buds or are they, uh, how much time do they have to get food and how hot is it going to get? You know, there's just, they have a pattern. 
Yeah, I think last time we talked about we talked about shade and sun and thinking about where they where they would want to be and they're trying to find that equilibrium and yeah, there was some we had some good conversation about that. Yep. All right, next question from Jackson Roberts. He's asking about this is kind of a, a question about the difference between your forest maps and your prairie maps. The difference in reading the cut maps versus the upland grass maps for pheasant. So Really, I think we we kind of there's a solid understanding on the forest and the the cutting maps. That's actual timber activity. But what are you looking at on the the upland grassland maps? Well, in the upland grassland maps, you know, I like to put in those maps areas that seasonally and temporarily flood. So you know where some of your potholes are, and typically those are the places you won't get all of them, but you'll get a lot of the places that the harm farmer sometimes can plant, or a lot of times has to go around it. And those are going to be grassy areas. And that helps, you know, like, you know, what are your pheasants like? That thick stuff. And then knowing where the crops are, you know, your cropland versus your um, thickets. You know, I put a shrub component in there. The other part is, like, for sharp tails, I'm putting an alfalfa layer in there for you. Those that don't know it, um, alfalfa is really expensive to plant. So, and it's more of a four to five year rotation. Uh, So, you know, I put the layer of alfalfa in there. Yeah, it could change, but more than likely it won't. But, you know, they like the alfalfa because it's the height of it good for sharp tails. It's not so much the um, thick, thick stuff over your knees and all that. Also, there's pasture land and grassland that's put in there. Now, there's no way for me to update anything fast enough for when all of a sudden, you know, when they don't, when they don't have enough rain, they start grazing on everything because the cattle have to so it mows it back down but there's it's you know you're looking at your grains and your grain uh crops you're looking at your oil crops your miscellaneous crops and then you're looking at anywhere that might have conifer which i know there's very little of it and hardwood so you're going to look at windbreaks and things like that and then shrub component but you're looking at it being around these walk-in areas so you get an idea of what you're walking into before you you know, so, okay, over here's a food source, over here's a grass source, maybe there's some wetland up here. That's what I'm looking at, you know, besides what's public land. Got it. All right, next question. Back to the grouse woods. This is a good question, and it's it's very relevant to my current situation, so I'm going to piggyback on it. But the question is, what should I be looking for in order to get a pup his first experience with grouse? So how can we select the best spot to hopefully get that pup into its first grouse or its first few grouse? What are we looking for for young young dogs? Well, think about your day before you pick your spot. Think about the distance and where. how quick will you encounter a bird? How far are you going to have to take that pup? Yep. The wider the trail, the more it's going to run back and forth. And the thickness, it, it's, it's really, that's sort of a tough question. Yeah. But if you think back even on where you've seen birds, but I would like to hit, if I had to just walk in blind, I'd want it close, not real far from the truck. I'd like to see a conifer component. I'd like to see where a hardwood comes together and where some aspen comes together. Okay. So that, and if there's hazel brush, all the better. Uh, I'd like to see an easy trail that's not so thick that, you know, they try to jump in and they bounce back off, bounce back off of it, you know, you've seen that where those and boing. Puff looks like something hit it. You know, know, it's like, what did I do? But 
those are things that I look for. And then anytime, let's just say you have, like you do, a second dog. Yep. That's very proficient. Goes in, goes on point. <laughs> this isn't fair to the second dog, but I put a lead on it, bring it right back in the truck and go grab that pup. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. You did good, but yeah. we're going to use what you found for little one here. <laughs> yeah. If your older dog gets on a point, you know, a hundred yards from the truck, that might not be a bad idea. Yeah. Well, I've done it. I've we're we're looking for slam me. dunks for those pups. That's what, that's ultimately what we're trying to find anyways. And so what I take away from your answer there is you're not thinking about it necessarily differently than what you would just a regular spot you're looking for the diversity of habitat the blending of various components all the components that we should be trying to understand and focus on anyways but ultimately you're hoping that you can get all that stuff coming together in a distance that's manageable for that pup to get to it's not a mile two miles back into the woods well the other thing too is you know one thing that you need to remember and this is something that you know, when, if someone's going out with me with a young pup and they say they're going to shoot, I only let them put one shell in. Don't let them unload the gun. Oh, yeah. If you've got a friend, think about that because you do not want to go, bam, 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 bam. No, 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 no. You might get away with a few doing that with a couple pups, but I can tell you, you're going to have pups pulled on you. They're not adult enough to be able to take that. Uh, so one shot, that's what I train them on, and just don't, you know, and then if, if you go with a person... One of you carry the gun, one of you handle the pup. Yeah. And it's about the pup. It's not about how many birds you can shoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could never be understated, that's for sure. All right, next question was from Hair Razor Kennels. He asked me what mapping software is that picture of. I'll have to, re- I'll have to respond to him and let him know what, what mapping software that was. I had a picture of Scout and Hunt up there. Moving on, the next question is, what is your approach to late-season grouse hunting how do you use the map in late season? So things to focus on as the season progresses. Basically, I'm looking for where habitat merges and comes together. And we've talked about it before. It's yep. one-stop shopping. Those birds need to conserve energy. The reason they need to conserve energy is, if you remember, when you breast out a grouse, there's not a lot of fat on it. Think how little fat they go into the winter uh, with And at 20 degrees, if the grouse is not in the burrow, he's going to have to speed up or she's going to have to speed up her metabolism. So that's not very cold, and then it's like they're burning fat to stay warm. So the less they move around and they can go get their food quick and process it and sit for a while, then go back out and get their food quick, their world becomes very small. So it's it's where the conifer comes together. It's where the hardwoods might come together and where you have that transition. Like up here, we have a transition of hazel brush that goes into a lot of times into the edges and out, out into, especially Minnesota. Minnesota's loaded with hazel brush. Yep. But it's, it's going to transition there because, you know, if you think about it this way, it's not that they're going to these young aspen. They're going to the more mature aspen and they're feeding off of the male aspen bud. And that's their food source. And they're, I've, the youngest aspen tree I've ever seen them in has been about 22, 23 years old. Typically, they're budding on these little bit older trees that have the conifer, you know, older aspen that has the conifer mixed in with it. Yep. They, there's a time of season, like getting toward the end of, of October, they're going to be in the ironwood, uh, which is a junk tree typically found in the understory of hardwoods or scrubby woods. They'll be up in that, and uh, but everything's one-stop shopping. 
say they come out of that tree, they're just going to come out, and they're going to sail down there and head right back toward the conifer. Because if they don't have the snow, they're trying to hunker down into, like, a bowl or something like that where they just fluff their feathers out and try to stay warm. They need roughly a little over 12 inches of fluffy-type snow to burrow, and they'll offset themselves anywhere to 5 to maybe almost 10 feet sometimes so that if a fox or predator stuck its head down the hole, well, the bird's way over here, and it can blow up. But um, it's going to be spot hunting, and I'd be looking for where I have multiple habitat coming together, but especially a good conifer base. And it's conifer that where they can get in and under it. Have you ever noticed when you look at conifer? If I, I can remember when I'd be timber cruising up in Michigan, and sometimes the winds would start howling. If I wanted to get out of the wind, I went in under a bunch of spruce trees or down into the cedars area, and the winds would start to go over the top of me. Even on a windy day during the season, listen for the wind to go over the top yeah. and have it quiet where you're at. Got it. Speaking of conifer, this is something that I've, I would be very curious to get your opinion on. In the areas that I've hunted, and I've seen it, many folks that probably hunt the Great Lakes states will see this now and again, but you know the pine plantations, the big red pine plantations, and also the jack pine plantations, those are, it's not something that I look to for grouse cover, but a lot of times you'll have aspen nearby and aspen stands. And I tend to, I, I honestly tend to brush them off a little bit just because I, you know, you look into those rows of, of red pine and obviously I don't see grouse cover in there, but I'd be curious what, if you see an aspen stand next to a big red pine plantation, are you indifferent to it? Do you say, well, the aspen looks good. I'm going to go work the edge of that. How do you take those into consideration? I think the quality of the stand is important of the aspen stand okay the plantation it's man-made it's at some point even a red pine stand and some of it will start thinning it if you're on jack pine you're on sandy gravelly soil it's like what else is going to grow here and typically your aspen stand sometimes then is very sparse in places it could be more of a weedy stand once it gets started until it finally hits a point where it gets better yeah and you have a good good canopy that knocks out some of the weeds i i think it doesn't ever hurt to cast by there because you know they still can get out of the rain in there but it's just and i'm talking when i'm talking about i'm thinking of a stand that's already 15 20 feet high there's just it's going to get dense in there now that could be an escape area i'm not saying go hunt all the jack pine definitely not saying that (laughs) or go hunt all the red pine or whatever but uh, it, it's, it, it's not, if you got a dog that you trust, just let it cast. Sure. I'd cast along through there, and I would cast probably, oh, it does, the dog doesn't need to go right to the edge. I think it's about 40, 50 feet off from the edge if they're there. Then you're going to catch them and that, maybe even a little bit more, because if you're putting pressure on that bird, that's going to adjust that bird closer to that edge. Cast it over by there, but then go cast it by the low areas. Yeah. And that, depending on your weather, I mean, it's not that they can't be in there, but it's it's going to be a little higher ground, yep. typically. Yep. And it's always, their natural tendency is to go low. You know, I've yet to have that happen, but I've had people in lower Michigan have that, because they do plant a lot of red pine down in there, because there's a couple telephone plants over on the west side of the lower part. Uh, so... You know, it's not that they can't be there, but if I had my choice, 
of what I wanted to cast in. I'm always going to cast in the low end conifer. Yeah, but you're not you know going to prioritize that stuff on top of some other places. Yeah, but give me hemlocks. Okay, and that's different. Yeah, I love it. Okay, I love it. You know, you know how many times you have people in deer stands that's got hemlocks and hardwoods and that, and the birds do like to get up around those hemlocks sometimes. Yeah, and I've seen that in Michigan. So. Yeah, I think per- perhaps the key word of my question there was plantation and really, you know, how, yeah, how, often right. we, how often do we talk about diversity when it comes to rough grouse habitat? When you see a plantation, you're just, you're really not going to see a whole lot of diversity. You're going to look down the rows and you're not going to see much on the ground. So it's, again, it's not a high priority thing, but where I'm at and I know where a lot of folks hunt, you know, you will see a good, a nice, good looking aspen stand in the middle of some of that stuff. And I actually, I scouted a few of them out this spring when I was turkey hunting and I was in the middle of an area that was all red pine plantation for the most part. And sure enough, there was a prime age aspen in there. And I, I kind of peeked my head in there and I heard some drumming. So there are some grouse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, what the problem is, is it, it creates a monoculture. Yes. And it doesn't give you the diversity. And see, like even when you hunt up in Canada, you're trying to find places that they aren't coming back and putting pine in pine, 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 you know, huge roads that go on forever and, they're just clear-cutting huge swaths, and then they come in and they plant all this pine in the aspen, and it just eventually the pine takes over, and the aspen's not a whole lot. Uh, but, yeah, I've never been thrilled with a bunch of pine plantations. Um, there's parts of Maine that does that. Um, there was parts in Michigan and the UP that was doing it for a while. It just it changes things. Yeah. Yep, and I uh, I know we've got some forestry folks that listen to this podcast, so I, I don't mean that to, to, to disparage their work at all, but I just am from a grouse hunting no. lens. We just wanted to just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, well, when it's when it's a commercial forest industry, they're going to do what's going to make the you know take care of the bottom line. All right, next question from uh, my buddy Jack. He's been he's been looking at your maps for quite a while, so this is a question about your maps and really the data that's in it. But he is curious about what exactly is lowland brush and how does it differ from tag alder scrub oak hazel brush what are the nuances there well it could be like a willow okay type situation or it's a if you've been in a bottomland area where you do have the trees and then it sort of changes be there's a like a swath that goes through there where there's a transition from trees to younger trees to saplings to grassland to grassy wet areas and then the actual water it's stuff like that. Yeah. Um, sometimes they don't have enough tag alder and they're just say tag alder. So it, it could be a mix of things. Got it. All right. Next question is from Mike and we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but maybe you could just run through the list of states. He's asking when are the prairie states going to be available? And I, I believe they are to a certain extent. Is that correct? Yeah. I'm only got, I finally just got it, the last of the data for Iowa uh, but North Dakota, South Dakota, and Nebraska is ready. Iowa will be wrapped up this week. Then Kansas will be the next one. And then it should be able to do Oklahoma. And that's where I'm at right now for the prairie states. Okay. All right. And before we close this out, and I'm going to, I've asked you this before, but I think it's, it's always relevant. And since people are going to be listening to this podcast right around the opening days of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and probably a whole bunch of others soon enough, opening morning, going out hunting tomorrow. What is Ann Jandernaw looking for in her first cover of the day? Where's she going to go? 
Let me look at the weather. <laughs> I like it. Take your time. Look at the weather. Okay. Let me get on the daily forecast of the Weather Channel. Okay. Let me look at the hourly here. Oh, wonderful. Oh, cripes. <laughs> they were saying it was going to rain tomorrow. I'm hoping it's, it looks like it's improving. It's not going to be all day rain. I don't know about maybe for you it is, but okay. this is a mess. Not looking good for you? No, it's going to be uh, Saturday morning. It'll start at about 1 a.m. is 60%. 5 a.m. is 100%. Hey. Then 90 to 95%, 6 and 7. It's going to be soaking, soaking wet. That's wet. So that's, yeah, Sunday, it's, the whole day is a, a mess. So let's look at Sunday. Okay, Sunday is going to clear up, and it's going to take a while. Winds are only 5 to 7 miles an hour to 8 miles an hour. 2 o'clock, we're looking at 9. Afternoon should be better. That, okay, what this is going to tell you is is that they're going to sort of miss a feeding day Saturday. Yeah. And so, you know, they're going to look at this, these birds, and you really aren't going to get decent sunshine till about 12. So I would go out and I'd look for conifers first. But you got to remember, when you're hunting conifer with, with an aspen edge, you're going to hug because if you're going too early, they haven't come out. Or if you have a place where, let's just say, I'm thinking back to one place where you have, I had cedar and conifer in that area. Then I had a little trail that went by, and so it went cedar, conifer, a little tiny bit of aspen, then the trail. Then there were spots, some clumps of spruce. You know how they get long and narrow? So they go through, they come out of the, you know, it's drying out. The winds are starting to, you know, shake the leaves a little bit. They basically are going to want to mess a little bit on the trail, but, oh, the trail's still wet. We're getting soaked, and we don't have enough oil in our feathers, so where am I going to dry, dry out? I'm not going to turn around and go back to it. I'll go to these clumps of spruce. And I can see them basically held up there, and that's when the dog goes on point on one end. And if you stay at, for me, if you're by yourself, I'm going to come down the left side, which would put my lowland on, on the left Dogs on the back end, holding the back door. And I want to get to the point where I can see across the front of the clump and down the side of the clump and even grab a part of it and then release your dog and let it come up the middle. And hopefully hopefully they fly where you want them to. So I would be looking for clumps of conifer and short hops or short runs or short areas where they can get out of the swamp, feed a little bit, dry, move around a little bit under this conifer, why you know which is going to keep them dry go out a little bit maybe go to another batch and it's it's like hopscotch you know until things become normal again but i'll tell you what they're going to be hungry yeah so they're going to push to move and that, and then what you have sometimes if the next morning if it's a perfect morning they may have eaten too much and they may they may come out at the normal time but some i've seen it where they've held back and they didn't really come out till a little bit later because they overate because if they, if they if they miss a day, it's like what do we do when we yeah, miss yeah. a couple then they meals? Go binge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're binging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if Saturday is a is a wet, rainy one, which it could be for some folks in Wisconsin, then Sunday could be the day. So everybody that comes north to hunt when they want to drive home on Sunday afternoon, they're gonna be in the car during the best hunting time. <laughs> it could be. It could be, unfortunately, yeah. in that but uh It is what it is. Yeah, you know, that's a saying I think we're all using a lot more. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> For everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's right, man. Well, I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Now, let's remind folks where they can go to find out more about your maps. And I think we've got a, we've got a little promo code for folks to use this fall. Yep, yep. They can go to www.mobilehuntingmaps.com. And uh, there's a promo code that you, you can find on uh, the Upland Project site there with this uh, podcast for 10% off. Yep on your maps and uh we'll have the information there for it and um i hope everyone has a great season and hope everyone enjoys those of you that have your new puppies that you know it's just you get that special moment when it all comes together yep absolutely all right folks can definitely check the show notes i will have that promo code listed there on the website and in their podcast description so they can find it there and Anne, I thank you again for coming on to the podcast. We appreciate it. I hope you have a great season, and I'll talk to you soon. Same for you. All right. Take, take care, care. Anne. Bye. Yep. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland Podcast. Quick reminder that this episode was brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA Shotguns, Gumleaf USA, Dogtra Collars, ESP Hearing Protection, Trinity Kennels, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to visit ProjectUpland.com to read, watch, and listen to more great upland hunting content. And please, if you enjoyed this episode of the show, leave the podcast a rating and a review that really helps us out and it helps more people find the show. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Up and Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.